Hello and welcome, friends, family, and of course, enemies alike, to episode 133 of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. Now, throughout this odd-numbered episode, we are continuing to go through the casebook of Sherlock Holmes with a new case entitled The Adventure of the Sussex Vampire. Now, I don't know about you, but these cases are getting progressively worse, and I am really seriously starting to question the constitution of a British person, because you've got crazy man who crawls on his hands and knees and creeps around like a feral animal, and then you've got that woman on Thor Bridge who somehow managed to find a way to take her own life while in the same conjunctional process is able to frame somebody else for her murder. That was indeed suicide. And now we've got a vampire on the loose. This is my vacation needle towards visiting England has been slowly, as I'm reading these cases, moving to the please, dear goodness, no, I want to flee this country side of the meter. From, wow, I, I, think, I think this is an amazing country that has a lot of intelligent people in it. And so um, let us continue the sane side of this equation through one Dr. John Watson in The Casebook of Sherlock Holmes. The Adventure of the Sussex Vampire, Part 1, by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Holmes had read carefully a note which the last post had brought him. Then, with the dry chuckle which was his nearest approach to a laugh, he tossed it over to me. For a mixture of the modern and the medieval, of the practical and of the wildly fanciful, I think this is surely the limit, said he. What do you make of it, Watson? I read it as follows. 46 Old Jewelry, November 19th. Re-Vampires. Sir, our client, Mr. Robert Ferguson, of Ferguson and Muirhead, tea brokers of Mincing Lane, has made some inquiry from us in a communication of even date concerning vampires. As our firm specializes entirely upon the assessment of machinery, the matter hardly comes within our purview, and we have therefore recommended Mr. Ferguson to call upon you, and lay the matter before you. We have not forgotten your successful action in the case of Matilda Briggs. We are, sir, faithfully yours, Morrison, Morrison, and Dodd, per E.J.C. Ah, Matilda Briggs was not the name of a young woman, Watson said Holmes in a reminiscent voice. It was a ship which is associated with the giant rats of Sumatra, a story for which the world is not yet prepared. But what do we know about vampires? Does it come within our purview either? Anything is better than stagnation, but really, we seem to have been switched on to a Grimm's fairy tale. Make a long arm, Watson, and see what V has to say. I leaned back and took down the great index volume to which he referred. Holmes balanced it on his knee 
and his eyes moved slowly and lovingly over the record of old cases, mixed with the accumulated information of a lifetime. Voyage of the Glorious Scott, he read. That was a bad business. I have some recollection that you made a record of, Watson, though I was unable to congratulate you upon the result. Victor Lynch, the forger. Venomous lizard or healer. Remarkable case, that. Victoria, the circus bell. Vanderbilt and the Yegman. Vipers, Vigor, the Hammersmith Wonder. Uh, hello, hello. Good old index. You can't beat it. Listen to this, Watson. Vampirism in Hungary. And again, vampires in Transylvania. He turned over the pages with eagerness, but after a short intent perusal, he threw down the great book with a snarl of disappointment. Rubbish, Watson, rubbish! What have we to do with walking corpses who can only be held in their grave by stakes driven through their hearts? It's pure lunacy! But surely, said I, the vampire was not necessarily a dead man. A living person might have the habit. I've read, for example, of the old sucking the blood of the young in order to retain their youth. You are right, Watson. It mentions the legend in one of these references. But are we to give serious attention to such things? This agency stands flat-footed upon the ground, and there it must remain. This world is big enough for us. No ghosts need apply. I fear that we cannot take Mr. Robert Ferguson very seriously. Possibly this note may be from him, and may throw some light upon what is worrying him. He took up a second letter, which had lain unnoticed upon the table whilst he had been absorbed with the first. This he began to read with a smile of amusement upon his face, which gradually faded into an expression of intense interest and concentration. When he had finished, he sat for some little time lost in thought, with the letter dangling from his fingers. Finally, with a start, he aroused himself from his reverie. Cheesemans, Lamberley. Where is Lamberley, Watson? It's in uh, Sussex, south of Horsham. Not very far, eh? And Cheesemans? I know that country, Holmes. It is full of old houses which are named after the men who built them centuries ago. You get Oldleys and Harveys and Carringtons. The folks are forgotten, but their names live in their houses. Precisely said Holmes coldly. It was one of the peculiarities of his proud, self-contained nature that though he docketed any fresh information very quickly and accurately in his brain, he seldom made any acknowledgement to the giver. I rather fancy we shall know a good deal more about Cheeseman's Lamberley before we are through. The letter is, as I had hoped, from Robert Ferguson. By the way, he claims acquaintance with you. With me? You'd better read it. He handed the letter across. It was headed with the address quoted. Dear Mr. Holmes, it said, I've been recommended to you by my lawyers, but indeed the matter is so extraordinarily delicate that it is most difficult to discuss. It concerns a friend for whom I'm acting. This gentleman married some five years ago a Peruvian lady, the daughter of a Peruvian merchant whom he had met in connection with the importation of nitrates. 
The lady was very beautiful, but the fact of her foreign birth and of her alien religion always caused a separation of interests and her feelings between husband and wife, so that after a time, his love may have cooled towards her, and he may have come to regard their union as a mistake. He felt there were signs of her character which he could never explore or understand. This was the more painful, as she was as loving a wife as a man could have, to all appearance, absolutely devoted. Now for the point which I will make more plain when we meet. Indeed, this note is merely to give you a general idea of the situation, and to ascertain whether you would care to interest yourself in the matter. The lady began to show some curious traits quite alien to her ordinarily sweet and gentle disposition. The gentleman had been married twice, and he had one son by the first wife. This boy was now fifteen, a very charming and affectionate youth, though unhappily injured through an accident in childhood. Twice the wife was caught in the act of assaulting this poor lad in the most unprovoked way. Once she struck him with a stick and left a great wheel on his arm. This was a small matter, however, compared with her conduct to her own child, a dear boy just under one year of age. On one occasion, about a month ago, this child had been left by its nurse for a few minutes. A loud cry from the baby as of pain called the nurse back. As she ran into the room, she saw her employer, the lady, leaning over the baby and apparently biting his neck. There was a small wound in the neck from which a stream of blood had escaped. The nurse was so horrified that she wished to call the husband, but the lady implored her not to do so, and actually gave her five pounds as a price for her silence. No explanation was ever given, and for the moment, the matter was passed over. It left, however, a terrible impression upon the nurse's mind, and from that time, she began to watch her mistress closely, and to keep a closer guard upon the baby, whom she tenderly loved. It seemed to her that even as she watched the mother, so the mother watched her, and that every time she was compelled to leave the baby alone, the mother was waiting to get at it. Day and night, the nurse covered the child, and day and night, the silent, watchful mother seemed to be lying in wait as a wolf waits for a lamb. It must read most incredible to you, and yet I beg you to take it seriously, for a child's life and a man's sanity may depend upon it. At last, there came one dreadful day when the facts could no longer be concealed from the husband. The nurse's nerve had given way. She could stand the strain no longer, and she made a clean breast of it all to the man. To him, it seemed as a wild a tale as may now seem to you. He knew his wife to be a loving wife, and save for the assaults upon her stepson, a loving mother. Why then should she wound her own dear little baby? He told the nurse that she was dreaming, that her suspicions were those of a lunatic, and that such libels upon her mistress were not to be tolerated. Whilst they were talking, a sudden cry of pain was heard. Nurse and master rushed together to the nursery. Imagine his feelings, Mr. Holmes, 
as he saw his wife rise from a kneeling position beside the cot and saw blood upon the child's exposed neck and upon the sheet. With a cry of horror, he turned his wife's face to the light and saw blood all round her lips. It was she, she beyond all question, who had drunk the poor baby's blood. So the matter stands. She is now confined to her room. There has been no explanation. The husband is half demented. He knows, and I know, little of vampirism beyond the name. We had thought it was some wild tale of foreign parts. And yet, here in the very heart of the English Sussex, well, all this can be discussed with you in the morning. Will you see me? Will you use your great powers in aiding a distracted man? If so, kindly wire to Ferguson Cheeseman's Lamberley, and I will be at your rooms by ten o'clock. Yours faithfully, Robert Ferguson. P.S. I believe your friend Watson played rugby for Blackheath when I was three-quarter for Richmond. It is the only personal introduction which I can give. Oh, of course I remember him, said I, as I laid down the letter. Big Bob Ferguson, the finest three-quarter Richmond ever had. He was always a good-natured chap. It's like him to be so concerned over a friend's case. Holmes looked at me thoughtfully and shook his head. I never get your limits, Watson, said he. There are unexplored possibilities about you. Take a wire down like a good fellow. We'll examine your case with pleasure. Your case? We must not let him think that this agency is a home for the weak-minded. Of course it is his case. Send him that wire and let the matter rest till morning. Promptly at ten o'clock next morning, Ferguson strode in our room. I'd remembered him as a long, slab-sided man with loose limbs and a fine turn of speed, which had carried him round many an opposing back. There is surely nothing in life more painful than to meet the wreck of a fine athlete whom one had known in his prime. His great frame had fallen in, his flaxen hair was scanty, and his shoulders were bowed. I fear that I aroused corresponding emotions in him. Hello, Watson! said he, and his voice was deep and hearty. You don't look quite the man you did when I threw you over the ropes into the crowd at the old deer park. I expect I've changed a bit also, but it's this last day or two that has aged me. I see by your telegram, Mr. Holmes, that it is no use my pretending to be anybody's deputy. It is simpler to deal direct, said Holmes. Of course it is. But you can imagine how difficult it is when you are speaking of the one woman whom you are bound to protect and help. What can I do? How am I to go to the police with such a story? And yet, the kiddies have got to be protected. Is it madness, Mr. Holmes? Is it something in the blood? Have you any similar case in your experience? For God's sakes, give me some advice, for I am at my wit's end. Very naturally, Mr. Ferguson. Now, sit here and pull yourself together and give me a few clear answers. I can assure you that I am very far from being at my wit's end, and that I am confident we shall find some solution. First of all, tell me what steps you have taken. Is your wife still near the children? We had a dreadful scene. 
She is a most loving woman, Mr. Holmes. If ever a woman loved a man with all her heart and soul, she loves me. She was cut to the heart that I should have discovered this horrible, this incredible secret. She would not even speak. She gave no answer to my reproaches, save to gaze at me with a sort of wild, despairing look in her eyes. Then she rushed to her room and locked herself in. Since then, she has refused to see me. She has a maid who was with her before her marriage, Dolores by name. A friend rather than a servant. She takes her food to her. Then the child is in no immediate danger. Mrs. Mason, the nurse, has sworn that she will not leave it night or day. I can absolutely trust her. I am more uneasy about poor little Jack, for as I told you in my note, he has twice been assaulted by her. But never wounded? No, she struck him savagely. It is the more terrible, as he is the poor little inoffensive cripple. Ferguson's gaunt features softened as he spoke of his boy. You would think that the dear lad's condition would soften anyone's heart. A fall in childhood in a twisted spine, Mr. Holmes. But the dearest, most loving heart within... Holmes had picked up the letter of yesterday and was reading it over. What other inmates are there in your house, Mr. Ferguson? Two servants who have not been long with us. One stable hand, Michael, who sleeps in the house. My wife, myself, my boy Jack, baby Dolores, and Mrs. Mason. That is all. I gather you did not know your wife well at the time of your marriage. I had only known her a few weeks. How long had this maid Dolores been with her? Some years. Then your wife's character would really be better known by Dolores than by you. Yes, you may say so. Holmes made a note. I fancy, said he, that I may be of more use at Lamberley than here. It is eminently a case for personal investigation. If the lady remains in her room, our presence could not annoy or inconvenience her. Of course, we would stay at the inn. Ferguson gave a gesture of relief. It is what I hoped, Mr. Holmes. There is an excellent train at two from Victoria if you could come. Of course we could come. There is a lull at present. I can give you my undivided energies. Watson, of course, comes with us. But there are one or two... Two points upon which I wish to be very sure before I start. This unhappy lady, as I understand it, has appeared to assault both children, her own baby and your little son. That is so. But the assaults take different forms, do they not? She has beaten your son. Once with a stick, and once very savagely with her hands. Did she give an explanation why she struck him? None, save that she hated him. Again and again she said so. Well, that is not unknown among stepmothers. A posthumous jealousy, we will say. Is the lady jealous by nature? Yes, she is very jealous. Jealous with all the strength of her fiery tropical love. But the boy, he is fifteen, I understand, and probably very developed in mind since his body has been circumscribed in action. Did he give you no explanation of these assaults? 
No. He declared there was no reason. Were they good friends at other times? No. There was never any love between them. Yet you say he is affectionate? Never in the world could there be so devoted a son. My life is his life. He is absorbed in what I say or do. Once again, Holmes made a note. For some time, he sat lost in thought. No doubt you and the boy were great comrades before the second marriage. You were thrown very close together, were you not? Very much so. And the boy, having so affectionate a nature, was devoted, no doubt, to the memory of his mother. Most devoted. He would certainly seem to be a most interesting lad. There's one other point about these assaults. Were the strange attacks upon the baby and the assaults upon your son at the same period? In the first case, it was so. It was as if some frenzy had seized her, and she had vented her rage upon both. In the second case, it was only Jack who suffered. Mrs. Mason had no complaint to make about the baby. That certainly complicates matters. I don't quite follow you, Mr. Holmes. Possibly not. One forms provisional theories and waits for time or fuller knowledge to explode them. A bad habit, Mr. Ferguson. But human nature is weak. I fear that your old friend here has given an exaggerated view of my scientific methods. However, I will only say at the present stage that your problem does not appear to me to be insoluble, and that you may expect to find us at Victoria at two o'clock. End of The Adventure of the Sussex Vampire Part 1 by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Okay, so three points of clarification before we begin. One, somehow, while in the midst of reading this story, I got caught in the middle of a fly's mating ritual. What can I say? I'm a very attractive fellow. And uh, if you heard some buzzing noises in this recording, uh, that is them. Um, so apologize for that if you had to look over your shoulders a couple of times. Second, what is it with Doyle you know, assigning blame to a woman of foreign descent because we've got, in the problem of Thor Bridge case, a Brazilian woman was married and he assigns some, you know, she's a victim, etc., etc. Well, she turns out to be the bad guy in this situation and occurrence. Well, in The Adventure of Sussex Vampires, the case is no different except it's a Peruvian now. We just moved to the other side of the continent of South America. So, I, I, I don't know. They make her out to be a bad guy. They make her out to be a blood-sucking vampire. So, pretty suspicious material that Doyle is trying to propagate. But I digress. What is it with this maid? Alright, she should have been fired immediately, this nurse, or whatever. You're like, oh, Phil, we should applaud her. She's watching over this baby so it doesn't get bit again. And you're like, hmm, okay, let's review the facts. She was paid off by the Peruvian woman for five pounds to not say a word. And she complied. I... Like, 
If you're going to protect this baby, and you tell the husband, oh, by the way, the baby's life is worth five pounds, and so that's why I didn't say anything to you until now, he's going to be like, oh my goodness. Because what would have happened if the second time this was actually a fatal biting? Which is really weird to come out of my mouth right now. But, like, what happens if they 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 see the the blood-soaked lips of this woman and the baby is dead in her arms. How do you think that husband is going to react and respond? Like, why didn't you tell me anything sooner? Fortunately, this was not a fatal sucking of blood, which I'm no expert on, but, you know, I, I imagine it's kind of like when a mosquito sucks the blood out of one's arm. But, but regardless, this is... This is all a rather peculiar situation. And third, because I just kind of skipped over the third point, as we're going through, as Watson and Sherlock are considering and deciding, hey, should we take this case, or is it too crazy, or whatever, he's just like, hey, Watson, pull over that index of all of our cases that we've done. And what's incredible about this is that Sherlock is able to find not one, but two other cases of them encountering vampirism in their lifespans, okay? Like the, the vampires in Hungary and the vampires in Transylvania. That's incredible. Two other cases of vampires, and now they've got a third? And they're like, well, now really, who do these people think we are, you know, taking on a case with vampires? I mean, excuse me? Have you seen your other two cases that you just read about? And what's even more incredible is Holmes is like, I'll never find any information about vampires in these other two cases that we had. Like, what? There's more than one type of vampire that exists in this world? And, and like, you can't, you can't, like, operate under the logic of either of those two cases? You haven't even heard the man speak at that point, and you're like, now, really, Watson, we need to be more picky about our cases. There are plenty of hurting people in this world, and we do not need to stoop down to vampires. But it's because of a simple rugby connection with Watson that, they dis that Holmes decides to consider taking the case. How thoughtful of him. And considering how he took care of his page boy in previous episodes, it's also rather incredible that Sherlock was actually considered about the 15-year-old child's health after being after the physical encounters that this wife allegedly incurred upon him twice. I mean, after you line up all of these facts together, okay, it becomes absolutely absurd that this case would possibly land and fall in Sherlock and Watson's hands, the fact that they're going to continue to explore the vampire niche. Like, I didn't even think that was like a detective's like niche. Like, you know, like if you go up to a private detective in today's world, not even in England. Okay, it's probably gonna have to be in England because I don't know, because apparently there's an influx of vampires roaming around Europe. But, I mean, imagine that being, like, an ad, uh, like, marketing material. Are you looking for somebody to help you with your vampire problem? 
Well, feel free to knock on 221B Baker Street. Sherlock Holmes has three... <laughs> three casefuls of experience on this matter. You know, like, that would be the most ridiculous ad ever. But Sherlock Holmes could bring you the records to actually prove it. This is not some, you know, hyperbolic message that is being propagated. This is fact that has occurred. What is going through the mind of Mr. Arthur Conan Doyle? Okay, like, has he had experience with vampires that he decides to write about this case himself? So, uh, I am absolutely enthralled by this case because it is so fantastic that I don't even know how we could possibly have a cohesive conclusion to this case. Because apparently Sherlock has already encountered two other instances of vampires. Thank you all so much for listening to another episode of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite Phil Olson. And blessedly, for now, that's all he wrote.